Hello, AJT readers. This is Roz Manon from the University of Nebraska Medical Center, welcoming you to the November podcast highlights. Today, I'm joined by two guests, Helen Tsai, Assistant Professor of Medicine in the Division of Infectious Diseases at Montefiore Medical Center. Helen is one of our editorial fellows. Welcome, Helen. And our other presenter and speaker is Dr. Ramsey Hashem, Professor of Medicine in Pulmonary Critical Care in the Wash U uh, Transplant Program in St. Louis. And I welcome you as well. We have an incredibly complicated, busy podcast, Don't Run Away. Just put your, I don't know, people wear roller skates, rollerblades on, but we'll, I don't know what people do anymore. So we'll first start off with, um, the, our first paper will be disseminated vaccine-induced varicella infection in kidney transplant recipient. This is a case report by Berman and Rupp at UT San Antonio, followed by safety and immunogenicity of the live attenuated varicella vaccine in pediatric solid organ transplant recipients. A systematic review and meta-analysis by Pichet Renault and colleagues. Uh, this is a Canadian infectious disease consortium. Senior author is Upton Allen. And there's an accompanying editorial balancing the live vac- virus vaccine scales, protection versus risk by Pasfay Barbie and Laura Danziger Isakoff. We're then going to completely transition to a different topic. Uh, we'll be talking about lung transplant and sensitization. Our first paper will be outcomes after flow cytometry, cross-match positive lung transplant managed with perioperative desensitization by Aversa and colleagues from Toronto Lung Transplant Program. Our second paper will be lung transplantation despite preformed donor-specific anti-HLA antibodies, a nine-year single experience, single-center experience by Heise and colleagues from the Hanover Medical School Transplant Program, and a great editorial, What is Clinically Significant Donor-Specific Antibody Before Lung Transplant, featuring our guest podcaster, Dr. Hashem and Adriana Zevi. And then our final two um, papers will be a completely different topic for the kidney people that are holding their breath. It'll be deceased donor kidneys from higher distressed communities are significantly less likely to be utilized for transplant by Schold um, and uh, colleagues, uh, senior author is Mohan, so University of Colorado in Columbia, with an accompanying editorial by Kim Ariola from Emory University entitled Understanding the Mechanisms and Implications of the Association Between Community Distress and Organ Non-Utilization. And the final paper of our podcast will be a mini-review Sex as a Biological Variable, Mechanistic Insights, and Clinical Relevance in Solid Organ Transplant by Zhao and colleague Stefan Tuli, a senior author from the Brigham and Women's Department of Transplant Surgery. So it is a hefty issue, the November issue, and I'm going to turn this podcast over to Helen to get us started. Hi, thank you for having me. So let's start off with kind of the trio of articles regarding live attenuated varicella vaccination, starting off with the case report. So this case report, Disseminated Vaccine-Induced Varicella Infection in a Kidney Transplant Recipient, describes a case of disseminated varicella zoster infection after accidental live varicella vaccination of a kidney transplant recipient seven months after transplant. The patient developed disseminated VZV infection with uh, diffuse skin lesions and viral PCR testing was positive for VZV. Genotype from the skin biopsy was sent to the CDC that confirmed the vaccine strain varicella zoster. Fortunately, the patient made a 
full clinical recovery after receiving antiviral treatment. But this case highlights the risk of disseminated infection after live vaccination in our solid organ transplant recipients, and also brings up two important points. First, that although there is supporting evidence and recommendations from the IDSA, the CDC, as well as the International Pediatric Transplant Association for live varicella vaccination and select pediatric liver and kidney transplant recipients who are BZB zero negative, there's not enough evidence for this recommendation to be extrapolated to adult solid organ transplant recipients. Second, ideally, the our transplant candidates who are BZB zero negative should receive varicella vaccination prior to transplant, followed by serological testing to determine if a repeat dose is indicated. But if this pre-transplant vaccination is missed, which was in the case of this case report, how do we best protect our solid organ transplant recipients from primary varicella infection? So I think the answer is not that clear, but this manuscript does suggest that the recombinant zoster vaccine, the Shingrex, is an attractive option in this setting. Um, although the evidence for this is limited, there is some emerging evidence of the safety and efficacy of the Shingrex vaccine in inducing immunological responses in our BZB seronegative solid organ transplant recipients. Helen, just a short question. How common are we seeing people that are immunologically naive to to either zoster or, you know, old style chicken pox? I mean, I grew up in a generation where we had no vaccine. So you would get community exposure when you played with your friends. And so I don't know. And, and but now it's a different generation. We have, you know, pediatric vaccination available for otherwise healthy children. This patient I noticed in the case report actually was Galveston, not San Antonio, my apologies, was from another country and emigrated to the U.S. So I didn't know if that was an issue that he had not received prior immunization. I think the manuscript does allude to this, that our um, primary varicella vaccination series is given in our pediatric visits in the United States, but only 36 countries in the world have this universal recommendation. So it's likely that this person who was born in Nigeria, I believe, or Nigeria, um, was not vaccinated as a child. Great. Thank you. Sorry about it. Sorry to interrupt. Keep going. The second manuscript here um, is our syst systematic review and meta-analysis that evaluated the safety and immunogenicity of the live attenuated varicella vaccine in pediatric solid organ transplant recipients. This meta-analysis included in total 18 articles, primarily of pediatric patients. Uh, this meta-analysis also had three main objectives. First, to evaluate the immunogenicity, safety, and effectiveness of the live attenuated varicella vaccine. So what did they find? So first looking at the immunogenicity of the live attenuated varicella vaccine, this was represented by the varicella antibodies in those who received the vaccine after transplant. So of the 13 studies that assessed immunogenicity, the pooled proportion of solid organ transplant recipients who seroconverted was 88.2% and was comparable among kidney, liver, and heart transplant recipients. Mm -hmm. Although the live attenuated varicella vaccine was immunogenetic after transplant, the seroconversion when you compare it to healthy individuals is still lower than healthy individuals. Mm -hmm. So two important caveats this paper points out. First, the limitations in the 
sensitivities of our antibody detection in the enzyme immunoassay as well as the ELISA test, but also the inability to measure degree of cell-mediated immunity, which we know is an important aspect of the immune response against varicella vaccine. The second objective was to look at the safety of the live attenuated varicella vaccine. And this was represented by pooling the proportion of solid organ transplant recipients who developed infection with the vaccine varicella strain after vaccination. So of the 635 vac vaccinees who had safety outcomes reported, there were a total of 13 or 2% who developed suspected varicella vaccine induced infection after vaccination. Of those, only two were actually confirmed using molecular testing, and then 11 were suspected just based on the temporal correlation or temporal onset of the vesicular rash. And fortunately, all recovered without sequelae. Other safety outcomes they looked at was graft rejection after vaccination. Importantly, there was no causality um, that was established, as well as local reaction and systemic reaction reaction with nine reporting diffuse vesicular rash that self-resolved without medications. And then lastly, they looked at the effectiveness of the live attenuated varicella vaccine, and they found that the, the pooled proportion of vaccine, vaccinees who developed varicella after transplant was low, only 0.8%. Um, and this was of 279 vaccinees who were monitored for occurrence of varicella disease. So in general, the, the in general, uh, the live attenuated varicella vaccine is immunogenetic in our pediatric solid organ transplant recipients. There are few cases of vaccine induced varicella, and vaccine failure was reported um, in some a few select pediatric solid organ transplant recipients. Some limitations worth mentioning, again, most were of tertiary pediatric hospitals with only few case reports or studies involving adult solid organ transplant recipients. And there were few heart transplant recipients and kidney transplant recipients included with no lung transplant recipients. And any other comments about the editorial? So the editorial kind of sums up kind of the uh, sums up the nuances related to live attenuated vaccinations in our solid organ transplant recipients. Mm -hmm. Certainly, there seems to be some data for select pediatric solid organ transplant recipients, particularly liver transplant and kidney transplants in the safety of live varicella vaccination. But there needs to be additional data to identify what is the optimal criteria and how to select these patients, especially our adult solid organ transplant recipients. And they also, the editorial does bring up additional points that there needs to be ideally more objective measures that can help determine how do we predict how protective this vaccine is, mm -hmm. as well as the duration of the immune response. Mm -hmm. So still some unknowns in this field are what is the what is the significance of measuring the VZB antibody levels? Mm -hmm. um, it, it is imperfect. Uh, how do we measure cellular immunity? because that does seem to play an important role in protecting against disease. Mm -hmm. And there doesn't seem to be any kind of standardized measurement for this. And also, how do we account for some of the immune heterogeneity of, among our transplant recipients? And I think that's kind of highlighted in our, our the safety of it in our pediatric liver and kidney transplant recipients. And this the case report that highlighted the 
disseminate an infection after vaccination. And then lastly, also the duration of protection after vaccination. Great. Well, thanks for summarizing a series of different um, uh, articles and certainly a not irrelevant issue, particularly some of the concepts here were ones we struggle with with COVID in terms of uh, antibody conversion, cell-mediated immunity, standardization of testing, and the like. So great. Thank you so much, Helen. Um, Dr. Hashem, we're going to talk about antibodies, but a different kind of antibody response. So I'm going to go ahead and turn the podcast over to you. Thank you, uh, Rosin. It's good to be here. Uh, good to be with you on uh, on this podcast. Um, the two studies that uh, I'm uh, going to summarize uh, address allosensitization, uh, which is an important barrier to lung transplantation. Uh, of course, this isn't uh, unique to lung transplants, uh, and allosensitization affects uh, all solid organ uh, transplants, with the exception of uh, of liver. Um, but it's important to remember uh, where we started and how we got here. Uh, and uh, in, in 1969, Drs. Patel and Terasaki published a landmark study uh, reporting that uh, cytotoxic donor-specific antibodies uh, caused immediate graft failure in 24 of 30 kidney transplant uh, recipients who had a positive cross-match. Uh, this illustrated the importance of the cross-match in selecting donors for a given recipient. Uh, since then, methods to identify HLA antibodies and their specificities have improved significantly, and the use of the virtual cross-match uh, made hyperacute rejection exceedingly rare. Uh, but sensitive antibody detection assays uh, identify more allosensitized patients, and allosensitization can be a barrier to transplantation. A number of studies have shown that the allosensitization is associated with longer waiting times and an increased risk of death on the waiting list. Uh, this is uh, especially true in, in lung transplantation. Uh, at, the same, at the same time, it's uh, clear that not all HLA antibodies have the same injurious effect on the allograft, which brings us up uh, to the approaches uh, of desensitization uh, that were reported in, in these uh, two studies. In the first study, Dr. Uh, Megan Aversa and uh, colleagues from the uh, Toronto uh, Lung Transplant Program uh, reported their experience. And I, I should note that um, uh, the Toronto Lung Transplant Program is where modern lung transplantation started uh, in 1983. And the program has become uh, the largest lung transplant program in the world and has been at the forefront of science and, and clinical practice. Back in uh, 2008, the program started using perioperative desensitization with uh, intraoperative plasma exchange and induction with uh, antithymocyte globulin, rabbit uh, ATG, followed by IVIG, and showed that patients who had a positive virtual cross-match and were managed with this uh, desensitization protocol had similar long-term outcomes to patients who had a negative virtual cross-match. But in that early study, the, the group only used uh, uh, CDC cross-match, uh, and only five patients who had a positive virtual cross-match had a positive CDC cross-match. Uh, in the current study, uh, the authors compare outcomes of patients who had a positive virtual cross-match and a positive flow cross-match to those who had a positive virtual cross-match and a negative flow cross-match, and finally to the control uh, of patients who had a negative virtual cross-match. Uh, this was a retrospective cohort study. And uh, patients who had a positive uh, virtual cross-match uh, received five plasma exchange treatments uh, with the first uh, plasma exchange treatment taking place intraoperatively. Uh, and this was followed by induction with rabbit ATG and IVIG. If the uh, flow cross-match was positive, 
uh, patients were treated with uh, uh, rapid ATG 5 milligrams per kilogram as a cumulative dose. On the other hand, if the flow cross-match was negative, uh, they uh, were treated with 3 milligrams per kilogram of rabbit ATG. And patients who had a negative uh, virtual cross-match uh, were not treated with uh, any induction immunosuppression. The maintenance immunosuppression regimen for uh, all patients uh, will, uh, consisted of fosforin and either azathioprine or mycophenolate uh, and steroids. And the primary outcomes uh, of the study were allograft survival and clad-free survival. And allograft survival is defined as patient survival and freedom from uh, retransplantation. Uh, the cohort included uh, uh, 902 patients, uh, and 85% of these uh, patients had a negative virtual cross-match. 7% had a positive virtual cross-match and a negative flow cross-match, uh, and 8% had a positive uh, virtual cross-match and a positive flow cross-match. And there was no significant difference in allograft survival between the three groups. The five-year allograft survival was 53% in the virtual cross-match negative group. It was 64% in the uh, virtual cross-match positive, flow cross-match negative group, and 57% in the virtual cross-match positive, flow cross-match positive uh, group. And this, uh, the differences in allograft survival were not significant. Uh, similarly, there, there was no difference uh, or no significant difference in clad-free survival between the three groups. The five-year clad-free survival was 53% in the virtual cross-match negative group, 60% in the uh, virtual cross-match positive, uh, but uh, flow cross-match negative, and 63% in the virtual cross-match positive and flow cross-match uh, positive group. So based on these uh, results, I think, uh, uh, and really based on the results of the 2008 uh, uh, paper, a number of other uh, uh, lung transplant programs uh, have adopted this uh, clinical protocol. I, I don't know um, what proportion of uh, lung transplant programs worldwide or in the U.S. have adopted this uh, this protocol, but uh, uh, I know a number of uh, programs have. Pretty impressive. I didn't know if you were going to just go right into the Hanover paper or not. And did they, I didn't read the paper in detail. I looked at the figures though and said, oh, that's interesting. Did they have any caveats in terms of specific DSAs or MFI of class one? I mean, are some of these people all just, you know, all yeah. class one, A2, and they're easy to get rid of? Or did they, were they able to comment on any specific differences in the population? Yeah, you know, the, the clinical approach was to treat all DSA the same. Same, uh, okay. Uh, all DSA, according to their uh, HLA labs uh, uh, definition of what's a, uh, a DSA, but uh, I'll get to this uh, uh, at the end, but we make the point in the editorial that we recognize that different HLA antibodies have different effects on, on the allograft, and there are some characteristics that uh, can be used to risk stratify patients. But in this uh, study, and also in, in the uh, subsequent study uh, we'll talk about in a minute, those clinical characteristics of the DSA were not used to uh, risk stratify patients or uh, approach uh, the desensitization regimen differently. Interesting. Great. Now, in the um, uh, next paper by Dr. Uh, Emma Heiz uh, and uh, colleagues from the uh, Hanover Lung Transplant Program, which is also one of the largest and, and most active uh, lung transplant programs in, in the world, uh, they initiated a desensitization protocol uh, that is similar in uh, 2013 and report their experience in this uh, retrospective uh, cohort study. They have a long follow-up here uh, uh, of nine years. Uh, and here uh, in this study, patients were grouped into two groups. 
Uh, one uh, was uh, those who had preformed DSA before transplant, in other words, uh, uh, patients who had a virtual cross-match that was positive, uh, and those who did not have uh, preformed DSA and did not develop early DSA during the index hospitalization. It's noteworthy that patients who developed de novo DSA uh, during the uh, index hospitalization were, were not included in this analysis. Uh, so the control group uh, was uh, patients who did not have preformed DSA and did not develop early DSA. The primary endpoint was allograft survival, again, uh, defined as patient survival and freedom from retransplantation. Uh, and there were uh, several secondary endpoints uh, that included clad-free survival, episodes of acute cellular rejection, uh, and infections. Uh, the cohort uh, included 820 patients, uh, and uh, 62, or 8%, had preformed DSA, and 758, or 92%, did not have preformed DSA and did not develop DSA during the index hospitalization. Seven of the patients who had preformed DSA had a positive CDC crossmatch, and only a CDC crossmatch was uh, performed in this uh, uh, study uh, rather than a flow crossmatch. Patients with uh, preformed DSA were treated with uh, uh, IV, IgA or IgM-enriched immunoglobulin. Uh, and if they had preformed DSA at the time of transplant, they were treated with plasma exchange uh, or immunoadsorption. And this started immediately before transplant and continued for the first three days post-transplant. They then received additional uh, IV, Ig, and rituximab, single dose of rituximab. And in the cohort, 79% uh, of those with preformed DSA uh, received plasma exchange, and 77% uh, uh, of those patients uh, received uh, rituximab. So there were uh, clinical reasons that uh, somewhere around 20% of patients who had preformed DSA did not receive either plasma exchange or, or rituximab. And traditional induction immunosuppression was uh, not used uh, for either group, and the majority of patients uh, in both groups were treated with uh, the combination of tacrolimus, mycophenolate, uh, and steroids. There was no difference in graft survival between the two groups. Uh, the five-year uh, graft survival was 82% in the uh, preformed DSA group and 77% in the control group. An eight-year graft survival was 75% in the preformed DSA group and 65% in the uh, control group. And there was no uh, significant difference in the incidence of episodes of acute cellular rejection, infections, uh, or CLAD uh, between the two groups. Uh, finally, there was no difference in outcomes between those who had preformed uh, DSA and a positive CDC crossmatch and those who had preformed DSA but had a negative uh, CDC crossmatch. Although I, I would point out that uh, uh, the number of patients who had a positive uh, CDC crossmatch was uh, only seven, uh, and there may be a sample size uh, issue here to identify any difference. So I'll move uh, to the editorial that uh, uh, Dr. Adriana Zevi and I uh, uh, wrote uh, in uh, about these two uh, uh, papers. Uh, both programs are really to be commended for being innovative in, in providing strategies uh, uh, to overcome the barriers of, of allosensitization. One limitation that we touched on uh, uh, just earlier in, in the podcast is uh, uh, that both approaches um, did not attempt to distinguish different risks associated with different DSA before transplant. Uh, and as, uh, uh, as you know, um, there was some risk stratification in the uh, Toronto protocol based on whether the flow crossmatch was positive or not, but this really only affected the uh, cumulative dose of ATG uh, rather than uh, making a bigger impact on, on the clinical uh, decision of uh, treatment for desensitization. 
Finally, I, I would point out that uh, uh, the sensitization and transplantation uh, assessment of risk work group or the STAR work group recommended that we incorporate BSA characteristics, uh, including uh, titer, complement binding capacity, the number of BSA and uh, subclass specificities in risk assessment to improve risk stratification and, and really better define uh, what a clinically significant uh, DSA is. And this really emphasizes the importance of close collaboration between clinicians and the HLA lab at their center uh, to take care of these uh, complex patients. And I certainly commend you putting together both of these studies so um, eloquently. And also, many of us are not lung folks, we're kidney folks, and we've sort of we've been doing this desensitization and you know, really, uh, one of the interesting observations is the long-term outcomes really do suffer in a number of these patients. And 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 again, I think the reason STAR in part came about, I appreciate you commenting on that. I was involved from the kidney and naive perspective, naive patients, not me being naive, although yeah. I was naive. But, but again, sort of recognizing the quality of DSA and, and the barriers that you're actually um crossing, but really two amazing groups. And I believe their HLA lab directors were were on both papers. But again, it's it's sometimes I'll see listserv questions where people are sort of talking about doing desensitization. I'm like, whoa, time out. This is a, a bigger conversation, just getting the, the transplant done. And, and certainly for lung transplant, where the number of organs is even more limited and the number of patients are really, I mean, they have no alternative supportive therapy other than maybe ECMO. So uh, any, thank you so much, Dr. Hashim. Those are great. I'm going to go ahead and transition to my papers. I'm going to talk a little bit about utilization of organs. We used to call them discard, but now we're using a different term called non-utilization. That means organs that were authorized for transplantation by the donor family and then not ultimately utilized. But And this paper is by Schold and colleagues assessing the another factor that's been now, I, I would say, confirmed to be involved in non-utilization. So probably on the average, um, in this cohort, at least about 20% of individuals were organs were not utilized. And we have tried to, we have, we've already indemnified some of our allocation scheme with the 250 uh, nautical miles and, and issues of donor quality and cold ischemic time. And we also know that transplant center staffing and resources, particularly on the weekends, are more limited. And so there's been sort of turndowns of potential organs over time. But this group really examined a completely different factor looking that's beyond donor quality. And that is where is the kidney being donated from? A little bit about the donor, but the environment the donor lived in. And so they, they strategized and assessed whether the community that the donor resided in and the distress of that community in terms of social determinants was associated with a like, a higher likelihood of non-utilization and whether these kidneys, if they were transplanted from distressed communities, whether their outcomes were inferior, because you would say if they're, if they're, if the non-utilization rate is higher, perhaps there's a perception that they're not as good organs. So this group is very well known. Um, they utilize SRTR data for about 20 years and they acquired donor zip codes. And if the donor didn't have a zip code, they were excluded. These were individuals that were authorized for transplant, and they had to have at least one kidney either transplanted or one kidney not utilized. They excluded anybody where the, both kidneys were utilized. And then they link this zip code listing to uh, um, an index that I've not heard before. It's called the Distressed Community Index. 
It was developed by an organization called the Economic Innovation Group. It consists of a zip code level estimate reflecting educational achievement, poverty, lack of employment, housing, the vacancy rate of that housing, uh, relative household income, and other changes in establishments available in the community. And it has been used in other studies, um, probably not to the extent, very much extent in transplant. But again, it's similar to other sort of census-based indices that look at socioeconomic status and social determinants of health. And they utilized 2017 data. And they basically uh, went ahead and compared the characteristics of donor kidneys and the transplant recipients from these communities using a quintile approach, looking at, at a lower risk of of a distress of a lower level of distress to a higher level of distress and the level of non-utilization. And they perform a number of stratified models based on uh, sex and age and other recipient and donor factors. They ended up with a total cohort of about 210,000 kidneys from 108,000 donors with a non-utilization rate of about 20%. Again, in higher distressed communities, these donors were more likely, no surprise, uh, African-American ancestry, younger, typically from brain death, had higher terminal creatinines and comorbidities like hypertension, diabetes, hep C, and were off more frequently CDC high risk compared to the lower, less distressed community donation. The cause of death, interestingly, was about fourfold higher due to homicide as opposed to and, and due primarily to gunshot wound um, injuries as opposed to other causes of, of brain death. Non-utilized donor kidneys were frequently older, female, black, AB blood type, interestingly, although that may be related to the availability of recipients, perhaps. Death after cardiac uh, donate determination, creatinine greater than 1.5, and again, comorbidities that I've already elaborated. So when they looked at the odds ratio for donor non-utilization, it wasn't gigantic, but it was very clear. It ranged from about 1.12 to 1.21. And even when they adjusted for sex and age, it persisted. And they actually show this uh, DCI as an actual continuous variable and show that utilization of those organs as the DCI, as the index increases and gets more distressed, uh, organ util non-utilization goes up, and even when they adjust for the race or ethnicity of the donor. Interestingly, they looked at some other factors regarding the donor, specifically things like donor management. So things like pump utilization were less frequently, meaning ex vivo perfusion, were less likely to occur in higher distressed donor communities. Another interesting trend was um, cold ischemic time was slightly but significantly higher in, in higher distressed communities. And when biopsies were performed, which was about even across all the, the lower quintile and the higher quintile of distress, Interestingly, the level of glomerular sclerosis in the cutoff is 20% that we use is like that's bad, was significantly higher in the higher quintile distressed group, perhaps reflecting that individuals may have more comorbidities. They also show a proportion of OPOs and actually rank them based on the proportion of high distress indice donors that they had. And there are some OPOs that really stick out that have nearly 50% of their donors are considered from high distress communities. And I thought that, uh, you know, they also do some KDPI adjustments because there is some sort of alignment interaction between non-utilization and KDPI. A, a very fascinating figure, if you sit down and read the paper, is figure seven, where they actually have a map of the U.S., 
and looking at the highest um, DCI quintile donors across the country. And no surprise, the, the urban areas of the United States are the most likely, but also the Deep South, including um, areas like Atlanta, Birmingham, where I used to be. Actually, the western part of North Carolina, which I found was interesting. There's a little bit of dots in my home state here of Nebraska, probably out in the rural counties, California, the urban areas, but also things like Central Valley, where the level of distress is relatively high. And finally, I think importantly, they look at the outcomes when the kidneys were used from higher distressed indices, and they really didn't find a significant increase in delayed graft function associated with a higher level of donor um, uh, distress community. And the overall graft loss was uh, adjusted hazard ratio was about 1.05, so maybe statistically significant, but death center graft loss was not affected. And so essentially really no difference in the impact and the outcome. I thought what was interesting also is they related that recipients and DCIs that were high, high distress communities more frequently got a higher distress, a donor from a community that was in higher distress, uh, lower distress, about 20% of their, of their recipients, more like 25% from higher. So the recipients and donors sort of seem to have sort of a trajectory together, but again, not affecting long-term impact. Again, the highest non-utilization rates appeared to be in the organ procurement organizations that had a higher proportion of these highly distressed community donors. And it now sort of makes, you know, now you have a community to consider as far as your donor pool as a risk factor for non-utilization. And they, you know, they had a lot of conclusions and suggestions in their discussion. One was that, you know, this higher distressed community may be a proxy for the donor hospital. And I really agree that I think that that's important that, you know, community hospitals or city hospitals that are not well-funded are serving a population of higher community distress. And they just may not have the resources either for donor management. The OPO may not have the financial resources to offer um, the advice in terms of donor management uh, and or the procurement opportunities that may be say in St. Louis, where you have an independent, um, uh, you know, freestanding donor, um, uh, you know, management hospital, which is really, you know, sort of unique and unusual. I, I have a couple of other comments. I think that this is a paper where reading it made me really concerned about how the CMS metrics of OPO performance are being considered. As many of you know, there's a new metric system that will be coming into play very, very soon. It's currently active, but you know, when you're in the lower uh, third of, of OPO performance, there's a possibility you're going to get shut down by CMS in 2026. And again, the, the rates that they have for donation do not adjust for this DCI index or any kind of social determinants of health. Um, and that's a, of a concern because these OPOs may be actually operating really quite well. An interesting one other comment by the authors was when they looked at the non-utilization reason, the most common reason was, quote, recipient not found, unquote. And I don't really know what that's about, but certainly something that they're looking into. Finally, a terrific editorial by Polly Kim Ariola at Emory really trying to understand what the mechanisms may be underpinning these findings between community distress and non-utilization of donors. And she provides a very detailed explanation with, you know, sort of breaking it down into five areas, including societal factors and, and norms around donation, community-based behavior and practices, 
the organizational characteristics of donor hospitals, the individual donor characteristics, which were clear where there were many comorbidities, and, and you know, characteristics of the decision maker in making the donation. And I thought her most important concern, you know, her most important impactful comment was really that you know, this information will be shared with donor families and it is already difficult and we've already, it sometimes is hard to earn the trust of donor families, especially in, in underserved communities. And this kind of data might reinforce their perception that, well, they're just going to take the organs and never use them and throw them away. And that's a really negative message. So, you know, Dr. Ariola's, uh, you know, conclusion is, well, we really need to get together on a unified front to be more transparent with the with the with the donor community as well as the transplant community in general, and and I think again reiterating that one of our biggest challenges in the field is you know being able to predict the quality and viability of donor organs. We have not solved that issue in decades. We think we do. We've gotten better, but but I think a lot of what we're seeing here may be a process issue of social determinants of health. And, and the communities that these individuals reside in, but really clearly that, you know, whatever we're thinking is going on in our heads has probably not been very predictive because these individuals, some of these kidneys actually did really quite well. I don't know if anybody has any comments, feel free to make them before I go on to my last paper because it's a completely different topic. But um, again, very, uh, really uh, outstanding paper by Schold and, and Mohan. And finally, I'm going to end up, I'm not going to give a lot of information on this paper, but this is a mini review by Zhao and colleagues from Harvard Medical School and Stefan Tulles' research group with some others talking about sex as a biological variable. As many of you know, when you're, when you're writing grants now, we really have to justify the use of both sexes, male and female. We're not talking about gender right now. And this paper provides really, I think, an excellent and outstanding summary of both the cl preclinical and clinical data that address the impact of sex in our field. They have several different sections that are very easily easily re readable, even if you're not a basic scientist, but these also really do impact clinical research. Uh, looking at the impact of sex on allomune responses, autoimmune responses, and innate immune responses. And they do allude to the HY antigen on male organs and its response with, in, in females when they're transplanted. I think another helpful piece of this paper is a very extensive uh, literature scan and review um, outlining numerous papers that are looking at the biological differences between men and women in both donors and recipients and all the transplanted organs. So again, a key reference, a couple of really nice figures, one looking at the intersectionality between um, being male, female, drug metabolism, environmental factors, genetic factors, and so forth. And again, a really terrific figure looking at estrogen and the relationship um, in, in females in terms of the both alloimmunity and innate immunity. So, uh, you know, regardless of what organ and regardless of whether you're a basic scientist or clinician, I think it's it's a paper I would strongly recommend. And again, gives critical arguments of why we really need to be expanding our research populations. If you're into preclinical models like I am some days of the week, we have to use females and, um, and males equally. And oftentimes we're not funded to do that, but we have to figure a way out. And likewise, when we're thinking about clinical management, whether we're doing clinical trials, you know, balancing our patient populations to ensure that we have relevant uh, sex distribution within those populations, as well as when we do our outcome studies. And with that, I'll take any last comments or questions, but I want to thank 
Both of you are presenter, are expert presenters for a very diverse conversation today and um, really highlighting an excellent issue. And I appreciate you all taking time to come and join me today. The opinions of the hosts of the show do not necessarily reflect those of the American Journal of Transplantation. For AJT highlights, you can find us online at amjtransplant.com. That's amjtransplant.com. And follow us on Facebook and Twitter. 